0: You're listening to the N2K Space Network.
1: Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com.
2: Maria, can I start the show with another dad joke?
0: Uh, If you must, Alice, if you must.
2: What do you get when you combine a kangaroo with a donkey? (laughs) Uh,
0: I don't know, Alice. What do you get?
2: A (laughs) kick-ass.
0: Okay. (laughs) Okay. Um, What does that have to do with space?
2: (laughs) Well, the Aussies are kicking ass in space and all will be revealed.
0: 20 to
1: LOS...
0: Today is October 20th, 2023. I'm Maria Varmazes.
2: I'm Alice Carruth, and this is T-Minus.
0: Varda Space looks to land its capsule in Australia. Space Force finalizes its commercial augmentation space reserve plan, Pakistan signs on with China's lunar base program.
2: And I'll be heading to Las Vegas next week to cover AIAA's Ascend Conference. Later in this episode, Maria will be speaking to the chief engineer for Lockheed Martin, Dr. Nelson Pedrero, about the Space 2050 vision that he's presenting at the conference.
0: On to today's intelligence briefing. Varda Space Industries has been looking for a soft place to land. After completing its first experimental mission doing pharmaceutical manufacturing, it needs to bring its payload back down to Earth. But then Varda's reentry capsule was turned away from doing just that in Utah earlier this year by the U.S. Air Force, and the FAA denied Varda's commercial reentry. So, what's a reentry capsule to do? seek friendlier horizons, and so they have. Varda says they're in an agreement with Southern Launch to land at the Kuniba test range in Australia, and they anticipate being able to bring their reentry capsule back down to Earth, finally, mid-year next year. And also, they plan on using Kuniba around that time to launch their second orbital mission. And while the company says they plan on having multiple reentry sites around the world as they continue ramping up operations finding an appropriate place to land missions in the United States wasn't a one-off problem. Delian Asparuhov, VARDA's chairman, president, and co-founder, said this in comments to Ars Technica. In the United States, there are no dedicated ranges with their core mission or even a secondary mission being to support commercial space reentry over land. Everything that's done today is either done in the ocean or at a military range, where this is explicitly not their core focus. And as we mentioned earlier this week, Varda and many other commercial space companies in the United States are really feeling held back by the current pace of licensing by the FAA, which, to put it politely, space companies might characterize as glacial. The increasing pace and number of demands on the FAA means its inability to keep pace with the needs of commercial space is not just an issue, it's really becoming the issue. Vardas Asparuhoff echoed that in his reflections on all that's been happening to his company. The commercial space industry is going through explosive exponential growth in terms of cadence, mass-to-orbit, complexity of operations, whether it's things like re-entry or responsive launch, and ultimately, I think you're going to start seeing those breaking points in terms of how stretched they are. And he went on to say this, One of the coordination challenges that we faced is getting FAA resources far ahead of an operation so that we can make a licensing determination far in advance of a particular activity. There's no way to do it with the FAA's current staffing level. The entire industry is feeling this pain point. Which makes us question how SpaceX is going to reach its ambitious plan to launch 144 times next year. They've already launched 74 missions in 2023 and are complaining that the FAA is failing to keep up with the pace of the launch cadence. We feel like this battle is only just starting.
2: Absolutely. The U.S. Space Force says it's finalized its plan for the Commercial Augmentation Space Reserve. The concept outlines a framework for how the Space Force will scale up its use of commercial capabilities, including satellite imagery and communications, during a conflict. It's based on the Air Force Civil Reserve Air Fleet model, where during times of crisis, the government calls upon commercial airlines. Commercial companies that want to be part of the reserve will enter into a voluntary pre-negotiated contractual arrangement. Under Level 1 operations, firms would provide a minimum commitment of peacetime capabilities to the Defense Department. Level 2, which includes regional conflicts or a major crisis, would require a higher level of commercial services. In Level 3 wartime scenario, companies would be obligated to prioritize government needs over their own customers. The Space Force is initially restricting reserve involvement to U.S.-owned companies, but is considering options for international firms.
0: Pakistan has become the latest country to sign a cooperation agreement with China to partner on a research station on the Moon's South Pole. China's National Space Administration says the agreement covers areas including the engineering and operational aspects of the Chinese lunar base program. Pakistan joins Russia, Venezuela, and South Africa, who have already agreed to partner with China on their moon base mission.
2: Japan's Ministry of Economy, Trade, and Industry has selected iSpace for a small business innovation research grant worth approximately 80 million US dollars. ISPACE was selected for the development and operational demonstration of a lunar lander. Under the terms of the grant, ISPACE will be expected to design, manufacture, and assemble a lunar lander with the capability of transporting a minimum payload of 100 kilos to the moon's surface, then launch and operate the lander by 2027.
0: India's Space Research Organization, also known as ISRO, will be holding an in-flight abort demonstration of its crew escape system over the weekend. The Gaganyan TVD-1 mission is part of ISRO's human spaceflight program. The flight will demonstrate and evaluate the test vehicle subsystems. And the success of this test flight will set the stage for the remaining qualification tests and unmanned missions, leading to the first Gaganyaan program with Indian astronauts, which is expected to launch in 2025.
2: The European Space Agency has announced plans to host a hot fire of the Ariane 6 rocket— The first test fire of the Ariane 6 last month unveiled a thruster vector control anomaly. ESA says that the anomaly is characterised by abnormal internal pressure of the hydraulic group. The Belgian company Sabka has been identified as a supplier of the thrust vector control hydraulic system and ESA says that they've already prepared a replacement without waiting for the results of the technical investigation. A long-duration static fire test is currently planned for the 23rd of November. It will be preceded by a full-scale launch countdown test in October, which is due to run for 36 hours, that will conclude with a brief firing of the core stage engine. That rehearsal test had previously been planned for after the long-duration test. We can also expect an upper-stage test for the Ariane 6 to be held in Germany in December.
0: Spanish rocket company PLD Space has announced plans for its first orbital launch from French Guiana in the first quarter of 2026. PLD Space held the first fully private European rocket launch earlier this month from Spain with their Miura 1 rocket. The company plans to ramp up testing to reach its orbital Miura 5 vehicle for the 2026 target launch to transport small satellites to LEO.
2: Cardiff-based Small Spark Space Systems has successfully demonstrated the ability of its digital fusion technology to support the development of customised solid rocket motors. SmallSpark says that digital fusion technology has gained popularity in the defence sector as it enables the development of digital twins using limited experimental data. They say that their approach will enable smaller teams to develop complex systems in shorter timelines and will allow engineers to focus on less repetitive design iteration work.
0: And our friends at Polaris Space Planes have conducted the first roll testing of the AeroSpike demonstrator vehicle known as Mira. This was one of the last milestones needed ahead of receiving an operation license for Polaris's Mira vehicle. During the roll tests, Polaris also repeatedly tested the flight termination system, including its rescue parachute, which will be deployed by a small solid rocket motor, as well as an emergency shutdown procedure for the propulsion system. Mira is the fifth vehicle in the Polaris fleet. Its first flight under turbine power is planned within the next two to three weeks, while the first in-flight ignition of a linear aerospike rocket engine will follow by the end of this year.
2: that concludes our intelligence briefing for today as always we've included links for further reading on all the stories we've mentioned and we've included a few extra one on the u.s space force supply chain and one on a mission to solve the mystery of mars's leaky atmosphere they're all at space.n2k.com and click on this episode title
0: Hey T-Minus crew, tune in tomorrow for T-Minus Deep Space, our show for extended interviews, special editions, and deep dives with some of the most influential professionals in the space industry. And tomorrow we have Dr. Nelson Pedrero talking about Lockheed Martin's Space 2050 vision. Check it out while you're mowing the lawn, grocery shopping, folding laundry, driving your kids to the game, or attending the head of the Charles Regatta. You don't want to miss it. All week this week, we've featured speakers from AIAA's Ascend Conference. A strong theme for this year's event is Lockheed Martin's vision for the future of space. I spoke with Dr. Nelson Pedrero, chief engineer for Lockheed Martin, and asked him what Space 2050 was all about.
3: So this actually started about a couple of years ago in my prior role uh, leading the Advanced Technology Center for Lockheed Martin Space, right? The Innovation Labs for Space. And in that organization, we have two primary roles. One is envisioning the future and uh, determining what kind of capabilities and technology will enable that future so that our, our customer missions can be uh, ex- properly executed. The other piece is prioritizing these capabilities and technologies and then going and develop those, making sure that. We can realize, we can implement that vision, right? So these are the two things. So Space 2050 is really an initiative that that I kicked off about two years ago, as I mentioned, to to envision the future, identify and prioritize capabilities, and then start uh, developing those. The 2050 mark is somewhat arbitrary, but it's not totally arbitrary. There is some thought that went into that. I really did not want it to be so, too far out like the 2100 or further out because it then becomes more of a science fiction exercise. But I wanted it far enough out. So this is, uh, you know, when we started about 20 years, 28 years out or so, that there is enough time for us to really develop remarkable novel disruptive capabilities. So that was a balance there that that we, we selected that. And uh, so so this is what it is uh, in, in a nutshell.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you. I, you anticipated my question about why 2050 very well. So, yeah, if you could talk me through some of the high-level bullet points and maybe any um, future space missions that might support that capability, that would be great.
3: So on this initiative, uh, what I challenge our team to do, it's really to envision space at large, the broader space ecosystem, and frankly, uh, it was interesting because as we started, myself included, we were all thinking about this, what are we going to do in space, right? On the moon, on Mars, in Cislunar, in lower orbit, and so on. But then I paused and I said, hey, you know, how do we get to space access? Uh, we've seen over the past few years significantly decreasing in launch costs, right? What else do we think is going to happen in this kind of time frame? But even beyond that, what's happening on Earth? Because... Uh, what we do in space, the systems are designed, they're built today, they're all done on ours. The workforce and so on. So he really took a step back and he spent at least uh, a little bit of time thinking about what's happening on ours, how do we get access to space, and then, of course, uh, we're all passionate about space. We spend the majority of time thinking about space. Now, in terms of missions, we cast a very broad net. At, at Lockheed, over the years, uh, our, our portfolio is, is very broad. Uh, But every mission falls in one of these three categories, right? To protect, to connect, and to explore. And frankly, when you think more broadly about the aerospace industry, aerospace community, if you will, beyond Lockheed and so on, most of the missions we do, they fall onto those three categories. So this is what we've been doing over the past several decades. Uh, And this is what we foresee doing in in the future. So when we talk about which missions, uh, it's really a broad set of missions. It's remote sensing where you have assets in space looking down on Earth for various different reasons. Uh, It's really communications, right? Uh, Communication satellites, communication to the public, broadband communication, protected communication to the military. It's really, you know, broad at large. Uh, Communicating as we... Establish a, a presence on the moon, Mars, and beyond. So communicate into, into deep space, into moon and Mars. This is lunar. Uh, and then exploring. Actually, the timing for this conversation is great, right? Because just uh, just recently, we had OSIRIS-REx bring back the capsule. And we're all, you know, eager to see what the scientists are going to find on those uh, on those samples there. So explore. And actually... Not so recent as ORAX, but it looks like every day we have some new discovery from James Webb Space Telescope, right? So uh, my team, uh, you know, in my prior role that I'm just transitioning out, actually built the near infrared camera, which is one of the pri- primary scientific instruments on James Webb that provided those remarkable images that uh, you know, help us learn so much about our origins in the universe and so on. So it's really a broad cast. I could, you know, I could pick one. And, and if you'd like to do that, I can definitely do that. I could pick one or two missionaries and, and delve a little bit deeper in terms of the technologies and, and, and so on, but but really broad and, and uh, including defense, the defense aspect of that.
0: If you could talk a little bit about one or two mission areas, I would be fascinated to hear more.
3: Uh, Let me start then with with what what we think is going to be happening on Earth that is relevant to the space community and future space missions. So in this kind of time frame, if we're talking 2050, right, it's it's time, it's far enough that we really think we're going to be seen and we're going to drive, we're not just going to be seen, we're going to drive a whole new level of integration in design and analysis tools. If you look back the past 25 years or so, You know, people who work in the field, they they all realize how far along we've come in terms of design and analysis tools for space systems. What we're seeing is another quantum leap in terms of those advancements to the point where the space professionals, folks like me and, and, you know, around the industry, we're really going to be able to to play a different role where we're going to focus much more in terms of what are the missions, what are the objectives, what do we want to achieve? And a lot of the process of designing, analyzing, and and even prototyping is gonna be automated. So that's on the design front. Today, we are already seeing mass production of satellites. Um, You look at OneWeb, you look at SpaceX, actually Lockheed was, uh, in the years past, when we did the Iridium, 70 satellites or so, we were kind of pioneered that. Today, we're actually at a different level mass-producing that, and that's fantastic. We see that continuing and accelerating. What we're missing today that we believe we're going to have in in this kind of time frame, 2050, is automating the development and prototyping, right? Development and prototyping today, it's still very um, human-intensive, very laborious. It's not highly automated. We believe we're going to be able to do that through the automation of design and analysis tools and through the automation of manufacturing and so on, but in a manner that's tailored. So think about printing a satellite. Think about a no-harness spacecraft integration. When you do things like this, what's exciting about it is that we're now, the, the, the speed of innovation is only limited by the speed of ideas. And we also are going to totally change the whole balance between recurring and non-recurring costs, right? So think about a production line of spacecraft, similar to what we have production line for automotive today, but that not our spacecraft need to be the same. Because you're inserting new technology and you're tailoring them to the mission. And now if you're producing and developing, if you're developing fast and you're producing on a cadence, now you need to get these assets to space. And so let me talk a little bit about access and then I'll talk about the missions in in space. So in terms of access, we've seen a tremendous reduction in cost uh, on that. We see that continuing and I think that's fantastic. But when we talk about 2050, that's time enough that we should also be exploring different ways to get to space. Think about spin launch. Think about a space elevator, right? So I'm trying to be provocative here, but really when you think about it- Space (laughs) elevator. Yes, absolutely. I mean,
0: I'm a fan of that idea, but man, yeah. Right, exactly,
3: exactly. So, So when you think about a space elevator, right, I'm trying to be a little provocative here, but when you think about it, it's not a new concept. It does not violate any laws of physics. It is a really, really hard engineering. Problem. But if we, we have shown over the years that when we put our mind as a community, as an airspace community, when we put our minds to it, and there is the will, we can make things happen. Now, now, why is that interesting? Because it's not only a matter of cost, because it would be costly to develop such a system. But once it's developed, now you have continuous access to space. But it's also a very different kind of access, right? Because you now you eliminated the launch loads. And when you go look at the systems that we developed today... A lot of the design features that we have to put on, like uh, think about James Webb, this very six and a half meter segmented pristine optical system with uh, exquisite instruments, right? Optical instruments, and you put that on a launch vehicle, and you shake that, and you launch it, right? And yeah, so a I lot of yes. the a lot of the design challenges are associated with just the launch environment, but then when it's in space, it's a more benign environment from that perspective. So if, you can, if we can get something like a space elevator to work, it also totally changes how you design systems and things like that. So we're talking about, you know, not qualitative change. Hey, I'm going to reduce the cost 10%. We're talking about quantitative change, right? We can now do things very, very differently and so on. So, so that's the part. The other part about access that I wanted to, to talk about is not just access to space itself, but it's the fact that we're already seeing tremendous interest in cislunar. We talk a lot about uh, lower orbit, mid orbit, and geostationary, so Leo, Mio, Geo. We're now seeing already a lot of interest in going beyond and cislunar, and so a little deeper into, into space. So that's uh, that's maybe a geographical expansion. But also there is a political expansion, right? We are seeing. I like to tell my team that space is cool again, and that's just fantastic. There is uh, private capital uh, coming into space. Uh, there is a lot of interest in the space that attracts, you know, the the most important thing. And now this conversation, right, is the people, is the talent that attracts a new talent. So it's it's a renaissance in the space that we're seeing. I think it's it's just eye watering. It's a fantastic time to be in space. We're very fortunate to to you know to to be here today. But there's also political expansion, right, where, where in this kind of time frame, every country will either have their own assets or interest, their own interest in the space, even though they might have been manufactured, launched and operated uh, by uh, partnership with, with another nation.
0: We'll be right back.
1: Visit N-E-T-S-K-O-P-E dot com.
0: Welcome back. Many an IT worker have grumbled about having to maintain legacy systems that are somehow, despite everything, keeping the entire operation running smoothly. Is it written in COBOL? Yeah, sometimes it's best just not to ask how old that system is. Well, actually, speaking of old systems, the programming language FORTRAN, which goes back to 1957, it's still holding up a lot of big and dusty old mainframes running government and military programs, probably a lot more than you might suspect or care to know. And this is probably not a surprise to any of our listeners with programming know-how, but yes, the Voyager 1 and 2 spacecraft, launched in the late 1970s, are also running on FORTRAN. So when you need to send a software patch to spacecraft that are 15 billion and 12 billion miles away, not only is that deploy time about 18 hours, but yeah, it's got to be in the programming language au courant in 1977, and yes, that's FORTRAN, which means you have to find someone who can program in it. And for our listeners who are not familiar with programming languages, this is like finding someone nowadays with spoken fluency in Latin. Not impossible but slightly below a needle-in-the-haystack level of rarity. And yes, the amazing decades-old senior citizen spacecraft Voyagers 1 and 2 are still doing pretty darn well for their age, thanks for asking, and NASA is still deploying patches to them, albeit very carefully. The latest updates being sent their way are firstly to avoid a glitch in both spacecraft that occurred on Voyager 1 last year that accidentally sent garbled nonsense health and activity data back to Earth. And a second fix going the way of the Voyagers is to help clear up fuel residue accumulation in the thrusters of both craft. These software fixes, being uploaded to both Voyagers as I read this on Friday, will help both Voyager 1 and 2 continue working and sending back data to Earth for many more years to come. Not bad for a mission that was only supposed to last four years.
2: That's it for T-miners for October the 20th, 2023. For additional resources from today's report, check out our show notes at space.n2k.com. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at space at n2k.com or submit the survey in the show notes. Your feedback ensures that we deliver the information that keeps you a step ahead in the rapidly changing space industry. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like T-minus are part of the daily routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, from the Fortune 500 to many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies.
0: N2K's strategic workforce intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. This episode was produced by Alice Carruth. Mixing by Elliot Peltzman and Trey Hester. With original music and sound design by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive producer is Brandon Karpf. Our chief intelligence officer is Eric Tillman. And I'm Maria Varmazis. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend.